Welcome to A Reason for Hope. Thank you for joining us. My name is Adrian Van Vactor, and I'm co-hosting today, filling in for Dave Robson. He is enjoying some time with his family uh, overseas, which is pretty exciting, and uh, he'll be back in a couple of weeks. In studio with me today is our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hello, sir. Hey, how's it going, Adrian? I'm doing Actually, I'm doing great. That's awesome. Just enjoying fatherhood and uh, our kids saying the darndest things. And <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do, don't they? It's amazing. <laughs> our, our toddler, he just makes us laugh like every day. Yeah. <laughs> so we, just, we were showing him some video on how to like understand numbers a little better. And we got distracted in conversation and we looked at him and he looked, he just had like his mouth open, drooling, just like in a state of mesmerization but the boring kind like in you know uh uh the ferris bueller's day off show where everyone's just yeah, drooling yeah, at the bueller yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had this look on his face we both look and we just started cracking up well that's an so important <laughs> uh, that's an important academic skill i think i i've drooled <laughs> on many a desk in my academic career so it's good to uh, to see he's developing that you gotta you gotta look on the the glass half full side. Yeah, there's no lack of entertainment, <laughs> yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> also with us today is uh, Pastor Sean Richards. Hello, Sean. Hello. How you doing today, buddy? Good. I'm writing a joke about Jehovah's Witnesses getting kidnapped. Oh, yes, and you have to go to Shady Oak Ministries' YouTube channel. Uh, Sean's been doing these comedic skits for several months now that are just uh, really funny. Um, well, why don't I just let you quickly explain who you're modeling the character after. Yeah, it's just a quick parody of the old Saturday Night Live sketch weekend update with Norm MacDonald. I pick up some of his vernacular, but there's no replacing Norm. I just uh, discuss Christian issues, address apologetics topics, and uh, try to have some fun with it. It's, it's funny. You have to check it out. Um, if you uh, don't know about our program, this is a weekday Bible Answer program. It's called A Reason for Hope, and we take questions from our audience watching live as we live stream to multiple platforms, and we take questions about the Bible, about the Christian worldview, comparative religions, really what life is all about, having a personal relationship with our one true creator God. How can we know God? Has God revealed himself in nature? Has he revealed himself in history? And questions like that. So if it's something that you've pondered and you want to get a, a more in-depth answer, then please join us, engage with us. If you have a question about how to apply a specific passage of scripture to your personal life, or perhaps something that's just befuddled you and you think, I don't quite know what this means, please chime in with us and ask, and we would be happy to help you have a, a deeper understanding of God's word. <clears throat> there are multiple ways that you can engage with us. If you would join us on Facebook, that would be great. Uh, you can just go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson. Go to the chat or comment section during the live stream and just type in your question and we'd be happy to address it. We will be monitoring all these platforms throughout the program and if we don't get to your question we usually catalog it and we try to address it in the future program usually the next day if not um, the day after. So you can tune in continuously and we'll get to your question. We also live stream to YouTube and if you happen to follow us on some of these social media platforms we'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to the usual things like <clears throat> subscribe, share to your news feed, um, and of course commenting and, and giving us thumbs ups and thumbs downs. Those are all great things that help grow our audience. Not because we <laughs> want to have a large audience, but because we want to see the message of the gospel spread to as many people as possible. Uh, so if you want to, please subscribe and hit that notification bell on YouTube, as well as uh, 
keeping track of our YouTube channel, which is our handle is a reason for hope 546. If you want to do a direct shoot or otherwise, otherwise you can just search for a reason for hope. And I believe we're the only channel with that specific wording for that name. So you should be able to find us relatively easy. We also archive this program to rumble. We haven't live streamed there yet, but if you prefer to be there and just want to watch the various questions that we've uh, addressed in recent episodes, you can go to Rumble and uh, search for a reason for hope. Follow us if you would, please. We'd like to grow our audience there. You know, you never know. We might not uh, last forever on YouTube. So far, so good, but we'll see. And uh, finally, as far as engaging on the live stream of this particular program, if you don't want to be on a social media platform and just want to watch, you can go straight to our website. That's CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. Go to the Watch Live tab on our navigation, our menu there, and you can watch a live stream of all our services, including this program. And there's a little chat box where you can ask questions, make prayer requests, and engage with us in real time live there as well. <clears throat> we have an app. We encourage you to check it out if you're a member of our community or if you want to continue engaging and being a part of our uh, services and what we do here in Tucson, Arizona, where we have our church, Calvary Christian Fellowship you can download our app, which is uh, available on iTunes and Google Play Store. We have an amazing set of features in this app. You can <clears throat> follow along in a digital Bible, take notes, watch our live streams. You can watch past services. And we are a church that teaches the Bible verse by verse, meaning we go through a book chapter by chapter <laughs> and uh, teach the entire book. We don't uh, uh, hop around and I don't know how would you how would you characterize that <laughs> cafeteria Christianity? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a little here, a little there. You know, <laughs> we don't do the buffet style. Yeah. We, we give you the whole book. Yeah. So if you want to go to our website, you can actually download the app, and you can search for an archive of a particular book or even a specific chapter and verse, and actually hear Pastor Scott teach a message that when when he had at that point taught that book, and we've got about 25 years of teaching throughout the entire Bible. So that's really exciting. So we'd encourage you to download those apps. If you want to just watch our live stream or past services, uh, you can add them. Also, if you have a Roku device and an Amazon Fire device, you can add our channel to that as well. And uh, if you want to ask a sensitive question and you don't want necessarily to see your name pop up in a comment somewhere, you can email us. That's questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you're listening on the radio, that's questions for hope, all spelled out, no numbers, at gmail.com. And you can email us your question directly. <clears throat> I monitor that as well, so feel free to do that. Encourage you to follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter, the Twitter webs. And that Twitter handle is at Scott for R4H. That's at Scott R4H. <laughs> Okay, with that being said, Sean, would you care to pray for our time today? Okay. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We hope that you are as well and are able to communicate your word to your people. We invite your spirit to equip my father and I to do that, not only accurately, but graciously. Allow that to make a longer impact on our lives than just this hour, that we would take this information as well as this demonstration of your heart and demonstrated as well to the lives of people we have the privilege of interacting with. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Yeah. 
Well, I understand that we might have, we talked about it yesterday, perhaps a more uh, thorough Bible prophecy update. Yeah, a couple things uh, we can go over real quick before we get to the questions that I think are pretty significant. Uh, first of all, uh, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, you might recall that was a, uh, a huge non-starter. Uh, Iran basically said, uh, okay, you give us back our billions of dollars and uh, we'll do whatever we want. That was essentially the way the deal broke down. Well, it's looking like uh, an Iran nuclear deal 2.0 is in the offing uh, between uh, the United States and Iran. Uh, it, the New York Times says uh, that Iran in this deal would agree not to enrich uranium beyond the 60% level while keeping all that it has already enriched. Uh, that basically leaves you three weeks to jump to fully fissionable material that you can use in bombs. Uh, two, uh, they agree to halt their deadly attacks on American officials in Syria and Iraq through its proxy militias. In other words, they're willing to quit killing our people if we sign the, okay, there you go. Uh, cooperate more fully with international nuclear inspectors. We saw in the last go round uh, how effective that was. Mm -hmm. uh, refrain from selling ballistic missiles to Russia. That might be the, uh, the real carrot, if you will, on this deal. Uh, and uh, again, uh, the United States, for its part, uh, first of all, this is the United States and Iran. It's not the EU. It's not, you know, the, the P5 plus one uh, from the United Nations or anything like this. It's just the United States. The United States agrees to not tighten sanctions anymore. Uh, number two, allow foreign tankers to carry Iranian oil. Uh, number three, hold back from advancing new punitive resolutions in the UN or International Atomic Energy Agency for Iran's nuclear activities. Uh, there's also a direct transaction between the two countries. The United States will release billions, that's with a B, of dollars of frozen Iranian assets to go to humanitarian purposes. In return, uh, Tehran will release three Iranian-American prisoners. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Uh, and uh, while this agreement hasn't been signed yet, many officials in the international community believe its enactment is imminent. Uh, some look at this and go, well, maybe that's not too bad of a deal, but here's the fly in the ointment. Uh, any commitments that Iran makes to this deal are going to be probably followed through with the same scrupulous attention to detail, fidelity, and honesty as the last terms in that deal. And we've talked a bit about how uh, in Islam, uh, there is a model for uh, Muhammad negotiating peace with his enemies, a place called Caravel. Uh, he, in essence, was using this as an opportunity to be able to improve his position as far as war is concerned. So uh, that would not be something that would be considered unspiritual by the Iranians. Uh, as far as uh, how Israel would feel about all of that, we don't see any comments yet from Israel along this line, but uh, Israel has already been very upfront about the fact that any kind of, uh, say, unfreezing of billions of dollars is only going to be used to go to fund the Iranian terrorist war machine in the Middle East. Uh, again, uh, that is a pretty significant development here, and uh, especially in light of the fact that, uh, according to a White House report, Iran is providing materials for Russia to build an attack drone facility east of Moscow. So not only 
is the Biden administration prepared to unfreeze billions of dollars for Iran? They're waiving sanctions so that Iraq can release 2.7 billion to pay off its debt to Tehran. South Korea is next on the list uh, and uh, would uh, be able to pay back what they would consider old debt. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, would not bow to U.S. pressure to make nice with the Ayatollah, said the PM, our position is clear. Israel will not be bound with any deal with Iran and will continue to defend itself. So uh, things just got ratcheted up about three or four turns as far as the Middle East is concerned. Uh, another interesting uh, development uh, on a side note, but I think it does have prophetic significance. Uh, form, uh, the World Economic Forum senior advisor, Yuval Noah Hariri, uh, made some headlines this week when he said that uh, all religions have gotten it wrong. And part of the problem, according to Hariri, is the human element in religions has messed it up, especially when it comes to the Bible and other religious texts. So Hariri uh, says the infallible that we need is not God or taking a look at the different religious texts of various faiths and comparing and contrasting. His point of view is that we need to have artificial intelligence write us a new Bible. Here's his quote. In a few years, there might be religions that are actually correct, he said in an interview. Just think about a religion whose holy book is written by an AI. That he that, programmed. That could be reality in a few years. AI can create new ideas. It can even write a new Bible. Well, uh, <clears throat> our, our good friend Amir Serfati has a comment on this that I think is germane. He says, apparently Harari has forgotten that all AI has a beginning. And at the creation point of AI, what do we find? A fallible human is typing its code. Seems to me the only place we can find infallibility is if we leave, leave the realm of the leave the realm of the created and look to the creator. Hmm. But uh, this is the uh, World Economic Federation. Uh, Klaus Schwab, uh, the other heavy hitters that always have their gathering in Davos, Spain. Uh, so many of uh, our elected representatives are part of the World Economic Federation, not just on one side of the aisle, but on both sides of the aisle. And that apparently is uh, their best and brightest thinking on matters religious. So wow. um, as far as Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two, uh, people uh, believing a lie because they did not have pleasure in the truth, uh, I think we're seeing a step in that direction. Hmm. I wonder, Pretty stunning. <laughs> yeah, you, it makes you wonder how people don't realize that AI is just a programmed system and it, like you said, it starts with fallible humans. And as it learns, it can only learn da data that's fed to it. And that data is usually from either the internet. For example, there's in the Adobe Photoshop suites, they're using AI to create new graphic designs. It's really fascinating. But content creators, artists are up in arms because what it's doing is it's taking everyone's work, their custom artwork, combining all the ideas and creating original work, but it isn't original. So an AI can't come up with anything. It can only take the ideas that are that exist and then bring them together and create a, an amalgamation of all those ideas. But it can't and come up with nothing, anything new. Yeah, and as it, we've seen with ChatGDP, sometimes they <coughs> can uh, filter the information that's given to it so it only reports certain sides of the aisle. Yes, well, it can and, be programmed with a bias. And, and, and at the, the core of all this, and I think the, the core of it is essentially spiritual, 
it's almost like uh, the idea that, uh, you know, we can say, well, we've, uh, science, I saw an article earlier where uh, scientists have uh, created uh, artificial embryos to be able to work on and do their thing. And, you know, the ethical and spiritual ramifications <clears throat> of all of that, I can't really comment on because I'm not really sure what that means. It's almost like they say science has created life in the lab. Remember when that came out, the uh, the famous uh, Mil Stanley Milgram experiment, you know, where he got a fish tank together and he speculated about what sort of chemicals would be in a uh, primordial earth, mm -hmm. uh, put some lightning strikes through it, and lo and behold, uh, mm -hmm. the basic building blocks of life, some proteins that compose DNA, they, they were able came to out of that. Yeah. Well couple problems with that. Nobody really talks about that Miller-Urey experiment anymore because in order for DNA to, or for these proteins to become DNA, there's a, uh, an important part, part of this. You have to have only left-handed, as they call it, uh, proteins. If you have right-handed proteins, uh, the right-handed proteins will destroy the left-handed proteins. In the Miller-Urey experiment, you had a 50-50 mix. Hmm. So when the headlines announced they've created life and lab. A, no, it wasn't, it wasn't like live sea monkeys somehow <laughs> came in, in this aquarium. Uh, you know, it was one of the basic building blocks of life. And they said, see, this can happen by chance. But even that, right? What have you done in order to do this? You've introduced intelligence into the equation because somebody has to build the aquarium and somebody has to make a speculation about what primordial conditions on earth were all about and someone has to build a battery so you can send the lightning strike through it all and putting this all together under the supervision yeah. of intelligent human beings suddenly you have uh life created in the lab have, you have intelligent design well <laughs> you know in essence you don't even have intelligent well, design intelligent. because it didn't work it didn't work. Yeah. So, but but it's the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you go back to this and say, ooh, you know, AI, you know, that could help us to be uh, more enlightened and have new kind. No, all it can do is rearrange what's already there, mm -hmm. as, as you said, Sean. So, uh, fascinating stuff. And uh, boy, if they turn AI loose on an AI Bible, it will be very interesting to see what it comes up with. Yeah, <clears throat> at the very least, it might help. Uh where was that verse again? At, at the very least, <laughs> yeah. I, I would, that'd be all I would like to see happen out of AI is, what was that verse about something about, and then AI could just say, well, it's in these five passages. There you go. Well, we've already <laughs> got that. AI might say, why do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I used to say, what I used to refer to that when I first became a Christian was a concordance. <laughs> That's what yeah, I called it. <laughs> exactly. came the analog. It was not uh, subject to hacking or anything else. You could, <laughs> like look at things called pages and get information from there. <laughs> my my a really dear brother who discipled me when I first became a believer, still to this day when we connect on a regular basis, uh, laughs and jokes about my concordance. <laughs> yes, yes. That's the technical term, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, there we go. Well, Pastor Scott, somebody wrote in and wanted to know about the acrostic heroes, like a, maybe a more detailed explanation on how helpful it is to utilize those letters to remind yourself of the most critical arguments or evidences 
for the Christian faith. Yeah, you know, uh, the the acrostic heroes is something that I came up with kind of out of uh, necessity more than anything else because uh, one of the most important questions, one of the most important things that we can do, I think, in engaging with non-believers is to bring everything back to one central issue. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead in a moment of history that can be verified to the satisfaction of any fair inquirer, well then, everything he had to say about life, death, the afterlife, the meaning of life, what it means to know God, is there a God, all the things that Jesus said are validated by that one historical event. And the Bible really throws down the gauntlet on that. Uh, you know, in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, we are told in no uncertain terms in Scripture that uh, if Jesus isn't raised, uh, you're still in your sins. Uh, in fact, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we are of, among all men most to be pitied. Uh, so uh, Christianity really does stand or fall on that historical event. And, and so when I share with people, whatever question comes up, whatever controversy comes up, one of the things that I use is this strategy of saying, let's bring the conversation back to the person of Jesus Christ. I'm on kind of a one-note piano when it comes to the, that sort of thing for a couple reasons. First of all, no more important issue than that. You know, secondly, when I do that, and, and I would just encourage those of you out here kind of nervous about sharing your faith, if you make Jesus the subject of the conversation, chances are you're going to know a little bit more about Jesus than the person you're talking to. You have the advantage of playing on your home court. But inevitably, when you bring it back to the person of Jesus and what he said, and Jesus made some uh, pretty radically different takes on issues than, uh, say, uh, passes for uh, wokeness in our day and age, well, why should I listen to Jesus? Well, he rose from the dead. Well, how can you possibly know that? So that's really where it comes down to. That's the nub of the issue. And so when it comes down to that, how can you possibly know that Jesus rose from the dead? Why should any rational person believe that, right? It is super critical to first ask a question. First of all, if I can show you um, six reasons why a rational person should believe Jesus rose from the dead, would you consider what he has to say? And if they go, well, yeah, sure, uh, then share away. If they fold their arms and say, no, my mind's made up and I've decided and this is it, um, well, then just say, you know, man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. If you want to know more about Jesus and why he rose from the dead, I'll be happy to share it with you. Hmm. But if you do, and oftentimes, more often than we think we do, when people go, well, yeah, why would someone believe he rose from the dead? I put together this acrostic just to keep me on track in the presentation and hopefully give not just that person I'm sharing with who's on the outside in looking at a relationship with Jesus, something to really chew on, but also I've shared this a number of times with our flock because if you've got this down, right, you've got covered the most important issue you're ever going to get into mm -hmm. in sharing with a non-believer. And if you're confident about it, it's going to increase the possibility, as uh, Greg Kukul would say, of getting in the batter's box uh, for the first time. Very few Christians actually share their faith with non-believers, even evangelical mm -hmm. Christians. Study after study has shown <clears throat> this. And I think it's because of that fear that people have. Well, what if they ask me a hard question? What if they, well, you got this down, you got a place to go. You've got a hill to die on, if you will. So that acrostic, he rose, the first letter in the acrostic 
stands for history. In other words, uh, the Bible doesn't begin when it speaks of Jesus with the words a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It purports to tell us the facts of what God has done for us in history. You know, I love what Dr. Luke said about this at the beginning of the biography of Jesus that bears his name. Uh, if you think someone says that the Bible is fantasy and fairy tales, well, listen to what the Bible says about itself. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as many who were the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. At the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, Luke goes on in his introductory remarks there. It was like uh, 2.0 as far as his biography of Jesus to this Theophilus fellow. And he said, uh, I, Jesus showed himself alive through many infallible proofs. Okay, so in, in other words, Luke is saying that you can verify this. You can take a look at this. You can check it out according to history. How do we check out any good historical uh, claim or document, John? The same way that you test anything else in history. You need eyewitnesses, which is what the word history means, and you need reason to trust them as reliable sources. Generally, historians, people who study eyewitness testimony, look for around four to six things. If they're close or even contemporary, they're living at the time of the events that they're reporting. They call those primary sources. They were an associate or at least had access to the people who were direct eyewitnesses. That's the best second bet. If you have information that is accurate, meaning non-anachronistic, that they're reporting things that are accurate given the time, place, and events that they're reporting. They don't uh, say, for example, report of uh, uh, you know, F-22 uh, fighters uh, making blanket runs over D-Day and so forth. That yeah. would be a, a questionable be a historical yeah. report. Yeah. So non-anachronistic, accurate in their reports. And then, of course, the most important is accounts of embarrassment, that they admit to details that would either culturally at their time or just in broad strokes hurt their case. They have to admit to things. Another comparable example to this are hostile reports that people obviously that aren't in agreement with the cause that they're reporting or in favor of the event that they're reporting, but admit to basic facts that are also reported by the people who are in support of them, like, for instance, the Bible. We don't expect, for instance, Pilate, Tiberius, uh, Quirinius, and others to report that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. But we do at least need them to mention the name of this individual or have in existence the kind of circumstances that the gospel accounts report. This may seem loose and goose to you, but that is actually sufficient for historical analysis. And when it comes to examining the historicity of the Gospels, we have one of the founding members of Harvard and the leading world scholar on evidence, his attorney, yeah. Sir Simon Greenleaf, yeah. reporting that in his examination of the Gospel of Luke on its own, you would have something completely admissible in an unbiased courtroom. Yeah, and there was no unbiased jury that would come to any other conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. Whether yeah. you find an unbiased jury is another question, yeah. but noting it sufficiently meets the criteria of history. So when we talk about history, uh, we talk about the Bible mentioning places, it mentioning names, mentioning customs, mentioning ways of doing commerce that uh, can be verified by archaeological analysis. In other words, the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms 
that uh, it is writing history. And dovetailing with that, and you mentioned that, the E stands for eyewitness testimony. In other words, the, the Bible wasn't written hundreds of years after the events. Uh, Peter and John, when they were brought before the same seasoned group of political power brokers that orchestrated the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, laid down the gauntlet when they said, whether it is right in the eyes of God to listen to you rather than God, you be the judge. But we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In other words, the disciples were willing to offer testimony not based on hearsay, not based upon someone told me who told somebody else. They said they saw Jesus risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about the eyewitnesses that verified the gospel, literally the good news, news in the same sense that we would use it. Well, I hesitate to use it because there's so much fake news out there, but say there was a legitimate news operation out there. Uh, news in that same sense, a reporting of what happened in the day. That's what the term gospel literally means. And in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, a, a litany of eyewitnesses who uh, saw Jesus rose from the dead is presented, including over 500 at this, who saw him at the same time. So we believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the basis of eyewitness testimony. Now, in a court of law, uh, there's two ways that you can establish a fact, circumstantial evidence and eyewitness testimony. Circumstantial evidence is kind of like the Columbo thing where he, yeah, I got a problem here and he puts together you know, three or four things and comes to a conclusion. But usually there's nobody who saw the bad guy do it. Apart from the bad guy. Yeah. So if you've got an eyewitness who is credible, who stands up under examination, that triumphs circumstantial evidence every time. Now, we could ask ourselves the question, we'll get to this just in just a second, are the disciples credible? But hold on to that. Eyewitness testimony. People saw Jesus risen from the dead. The R stands for the riddle of the empty tomb. Uh, you know, it's uh, one thing that is accepted by scholars of all stripes, uh, secular and sainted, is that three days after Jesus died, his tomb was empty. Well, there's all kinds of ways to try to explain that. Uh, one of them is that uh, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. It's called the swoon theory, that it just seemed like he died, put into the tomb, uh, the cool air, they usually say, in the tomb, or maybe the spices in which he was anointed, revived him. He removed the stone and escaped, and his disciples saw him and mistook that for a resurrection. I've sat, honest to goodness, in secular university classes where professors with lots of letters after their names have seriously put that forward as an explanation. Despite what's secular. What's, <laughs> what's the problem with that? Well, first of all, did Jesus die on the cross? Well, we know historically that every crucifixion victim had to have their death certified by no less than four witnesses that the Romans would put forth. They had to certify the person was dead before he would be taken down. How was Jesus' death certified? We are told in the Gospel of John that one of the Roman soldiers took a Roman pike, a long spear, shoved it into Jesus' side, and blood and water flowed from the wound. Only then was Jesus allowed to come down from the cross. It's very clear, and we can go into the details about the blood and water and what's involved with all of that, but it's very clear that these individuals would have no desire whatsoever to take somebody down from the cross unless they knew he was actually dead. They had to do it because Passover was coming. They did it kind of as a sop to the, the Jews uh, because they didn't want to have dead bodies hanging around on their high holy day. So uh, Jesus' death was certain. Uh, but say, for sake of argument, he just swooned. 
is placed inside a tomb. Well, the tomb that Jesus was placed in uh, had a rock that was rolled into place in front of it that weighed anywhere from 800 pounds to two tons. You're telling me that an individual who had gone through the mauling that Jesus had experienced at the hands of the Romans, scourging, which oftentimes is enough to kill people, they call it the living death, that he was crucified for six hours, that a Roman soldier shoved a pike into his side and blood and water flowed from him. When you're going to tell me that this guy revived and was able to, well, bench press or maybe squat thrust an 800-pound to 1,002-ton stone out of the way? To add to this, that uh, tomb was secured by a detachment of Roman soldiers sealed with Caesar's seal. For a Roman soldier to allow Caesar's seal to be broken in an unauthorized way would result in them being crucified. So they were very, very motivated. So you're telling me that this guy who's gone through all of this somehow revives in the tomb, bench presses the 800-pound to two-ton stone, overcomes an incredibly motivated and armed-to-the-teeth battalion of Roman soldiers, and then somehow escapes, looking more like hamburger helper than anything else, and says, I've risen from the dead. And Oh, yeah, it's a miracle that's going on here. You believe that, you have more faith than I do. Now, there's others like the mistaken identity thing. Okay, you can mistake someone's identity, but you're not going to be able to mistake the identity of someone who has the wounds of crucifixion still upon them. It wasn't mistaken identity, and so on. Uh, the riddle of the empty tomb. There's only one theory that fits the facts, that he actually rose from the dead just as he said he was going to. The supernatural theory is the only one that explains all of the data that we have from the eyewitness accounts. The O in our acrostic stands for the overwhelming change in the life of the disciples. You know, let's face it, the disciples hardly distinguished themselves on the night that Jesus was betrayed. They basically turned tail and ran and tried to say it. Peter swore up and down he would never deny Jesus, denied him three times. So suddenly you have this group of individuals that basically were living for their, their own survival. That was their number one priority who are willing at this point not just to testify to things they'd seen and heard, but were so committed to what they had seen and heard, they were willing to die for it. We are told of the 11 disciples that were left after Judas Iscariot uh, betrayed Jesus. 10 out of the 11 died brutal, grisly, torturous deaths rather than renounce their claim that Jesus rose from the dead. That was the point they were willing to die for. The other one uh, was the Apostle John, and uh, he was at one point tossed in a uh, pot of boiling oil uh, to get him to repent, and uh, he still would not change his tune. And not during a time in his life where he had the uh, spry vigor of youth to help him shrug off such a traumatic experience. Yeah, so, I mean, someone's pointing to me, at me at the French fry vat and says, uh, change your story. Uh, either I'm absolutely convinced something is true, the pain of death, or I'm going to say, ha, oh, we just made it up. Oh, we just thought it was a great way to make a religion. We can make big money off of this, and I'm, we're really sorry we'll go away now. And recognize what's being argued here. We're not saying that people don't lie. Of course they do. We're not saying that it's impossible for Roman soldiers to fall asleep at the tomb. Of course they do. What we're asking for is all the data to be considered and explanatory power to be given credit. If the overwhelming change in the lives of the disciples is worth the paper it's printed on, it's only going to be worth something if it came from, see the point we made about history, primary sources. 
Anyone can die for a lie, but they have to believe that it's true. These men were the ones coming up with the story, and they all unanimously laid down their lives, or at least endured lives of brutal torture, exile, and persecution as a result of their decisions. Every single one of them either went to their deaths or endured more than most of us would even willing to be standing for if it was really that worth that much. They're people who will give up the truth under pressure. But these men were so convinced that they saw Jesus die and they saw him alive again after that publicly verifiable and historically certain death, according to atheist scholars, as much as Christians, as we said, you're talking about someone who's not only forming the story, but is proving sincerity. Now note, if you have a bunch of sincere people, well, what if it was a hallucination? You end up creating a bigger miracle than the crucifixion and resurrection itself. If you have a hallucination, you have a dreamlike state that you're seeing while you're awake. People who have hallucinations don't all share hallucinations. Yeah, 500 people at once don't have the same hallucination. Just like 500 people at one time aren't going to have the exact same dream in a sleep-like state. There are reports of, quote, mass hallucinations, but if you actually look at the reports, it turns out that there's common threads of their environment. Like, for instance, the one they'll often point to is this vision that a crowd had of the Virgin Mary descending at upon Fatima, the yeah, yeah. yeah. But the problem was, when you say, oh, they all reported the same thing, it was a crowd hallucination. No, some of them reported, well, the sun was looking kind of weird and it looked like a figure. Other people said, well, something was just reflecting off of us and it kind of burned our eyes. Other people said, oh, it was this saint. Oh, it was the Virgin Mary herself. The accounts differ, but the experience is what? A light source, right. not a hallucination of a specific figure interacting with them physically and audibly and even eating in their presence, as the eyewitness accounts report. Or even putting out his hand and saying, put your finger into the nail prints in my hand and your hand into the wound in my side. Yeah, yeah. to an individual yeah. who, by the way, was not in the position to be persuaded, noting some of the uh, mind control And that, that particular individual, Thomas, ended up taking the gospel to India, according to church tradition, ended up being shot through with arrows uh, for his testimony that Jesus rose from the dead. Have After to be being pretty convinced. I visited that cave. Yeah, have to be pretty convinced. So the overwhelming change in the life of the disciples. Why? Not because of a feeling, not because of a philosophy, because of the fact that Jesus rose mm. from the dead. Peter himself said, we did not follow cleverly devised fables. We made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, we saw him. This is what this is all about. And uh, to go from a person that sold Jesus out to literally laying down his life. Uh, according to church tradition, Peter was crucified upside down for his testimony. Uh, you know, you have to explain that. Uh, you know, people will die for sincerely held beliefs, but they're usually taking somebody's word for it. These men were willing to die for first-hand information, first-hand experiences with a living Christ, and it changed their entire lives. The S in our acrostic stands for Scripture. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus was something that should have been anticipated. First of all, Jesus himself predicted that he would die, the kind of death that he would die, and three days later he would rise. He pointed to passages like Jonah and his account in The Large Fish as a foreshadowing 
of what he was going to do. Uh, we take a look at Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant. And we are told in that passage that uh, after the suffering, after he see his suffering, he shall prolong his offspring, he shall see his days, and uh, the good pleasure of the Lord shall uh, prosper in his hand. So 700 years before the time of Christ, Jesus' resurrection was predicted. And there are a number of other uh, prophecies in the Old Testament we could cite to back that up. Uh, you know, again, the Apostle Paul said that Jesus died according to the Scriptures and was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. In other words, Jesus fulfilled prophecy. And we could point people to these mm -hmm. prophecies and say, you know, the Isaiah scroll, uh, 200 years before the time of Christ, we have a copy of that, has Isaiah 53 in it. And you got a deal. So, and then finally, the E in our acrostic stands for our own experience. That is how knowing Jesus in a personal way has changed our lives individually. Uh, how Jesus has, uh, again, revealed himself to us. And all of us have a story to tell about uh, who we were before we became uh, Christians. So what, what was it that, that led us to Christ? You know, what, was it, what did it mean for us to make that decision? And mm. uh, knowing that living Christ is a very powerful thing to share with non-believers. This is where you would insert like your personal testimony. Then. Exactly, hmm. exactly. So history, eyewitness testimony, the riddle of the empty tomb, the overwhelming change in the life of the disciples, scripture fulfilled, and our own experience. Yeah, share those with people and you know, try to keep it more succinct than, than we did. We're kind of filling in all the uh, details for you, or <clears throat> many of them. But uh, really an important thing to have under your belt and really give you confidence to be able to share your faith no matter how skeptical the arena is. And I love that you added the S. I mean, obviously you have to if you're going to use heroes, but uh, yeah. adding that scripture element in addition to the eyewitness testimony because the Gospels are the eyewitness testimony, which is in scripture, but the idea that this is a fulfillment of scripture, the Hebrews' scripture, the scripture of Jesus' right. day. So that's, that's awesome. OTOGs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Scott. And uh, did you have you do you have that published anywhere that people could access it? Um, it was in a book uh, that I wrote uh, for the Calvary Basics series called Answers for Skeptics. Um, that is out of print at the moment, but we are seeking to get the goodies together and reprint it. And we'll awesome. be happy to post this as our question of the week, provide resources for any of you listening who would want this in writing. And of course, uh, we're not stingy with material. Feel free to use this. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, we have some time to catch up on some questions we had from yesterday. Yeah. <clears throat> Josh wanted to know, uh, what are your thoughts of Christians claiming that uh, because of the fact that Lucifer was once associated with musical instruments and then fell, that God now hates musical instruments? The proof passage used is Amos 5, 21 through 27. I've come across this as an illusionist. I was forced to not use music or specific kind, any music that had drum beats or anything like that, only classical music <laughs> in some of the churches that I've uh, presented in. So it's it's not un, uh, uncommon it happens. to hear this. <laughs> yes, uh, let me read the passage in Amos and then let's see if this stands up under consistency. Uh, I hate and despise your feast days, God speaking, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. So now we have to throw church out as something God hates too. 
Uh, Though you offer me burnt offerings, so offerings... We don't do that anymore. ...and grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run it down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. He goes to verse 27, so we'll continue reading. Did you offer me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carried Sikath, your king, and Chitun, your idols, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. These are idols, by the way. Uh, Therefore, you will send, I will send you to captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the Lord, whose name is God of hosts, literally uh, Yahweh Sabaoth. So in that passage, first of all, we have a speaker, we have an audience, and we have a reason and an outcome by the way. But here's what's interesting about that passage, first of all, then we'll go into critiquing the conclusion. First of all, when Amos, his full name was Amaziah, but he was kind of a a farmer guy, and that was what was interesting about the book is that, you know, prophets were normally the educated guys, the people who were the scholars, people who had studied the Hebrew tribes of uh, Levi in particular, people who were from the descendants of Moses or maybe even Judah, the prophets, people you'd look up to. And this farmer guy came up and says, hey man, I'm Amos. Uh, God's got some words for you. And that's what the book of Amos is. But what's interesting about it is he's calling out the northern ten tribes of Israel, what would later be known as the Samaritans, and their exile into the Syrian, or Assyrian rather, empire. Damascus, of course, being the Syrian capital, but noting their, uh, I guess, losses would not be without counting. When they had rejected a relationship with the true and living God, there would be consequences. But what's interesting about it is they hadn't rejected God. They had just added him to a list of other excuses for their bad habits. He mentions two of them, but they had plenty of other idols, including, but not limited to, Apis, the golden calf that was started by their founder, uh, Rehoboam. Rehoboam, thank you. I was like, is it J or R? Actually, it was Jeroboam. Okay, yeah, Jeroboam. I, I take that back. It was Jeroboam. So note the historical context of the statement. They were worshiping other gods in addition to the true and living God, and just like anyone else in a uh, involuntary polyamorous relationship, and those are in them, but just won't say it in public, they aren't fun with sharing. God was in a relationship with them that was intended to be exclusive. He spelled that out for them in Exodus chapter 20, that he wasn't a fan of the whole idols game. And as a result, no matter how many songs they sung, no matter how many offerings they brought, no matter how many festivals or gatherings they hosted in God's name, they were violating the exclusivity of that relationship, and therefore it was all meaningless. Now with the context then clarified, how do we conclude that music is what God's upset about. Well, notice the inconsistency, because he mentions every other form of worship, not just music, as something that he hates. Why? Not because of the thing in of itself, but the fact they were worshiping idols alongside of it. It was hypocritical. It was the sowing your wild oats mentality in church, which we see even in the book of Malachi, that he's not accepting your offerings, because first of all, they're garbage, but secondly, their heart's not in them. So that's the first problem. Secondly, to make the vague association with Lucifer having timbrels prepared for him on the day that he was created. And some people associate that as him being this unique type of blessing, this exalted one, this cherub literally, that um, had this role as a worship leader in heaven. Eh, Take it or leave it, but the point of emphasis is he was once beautiful, he was once wise, then he fell. Now, as a result of that, does God despise wisdom? 
does God despise beauty? <laughs> are, are we supposed to be good Christians and be foolish? Well, I guess if you're going to level these objections, snark aside, but if we're going to be consistent with that handling of Scripture, this person's not being objective with the text. When you're reading a passage, usually a section, not, of course, giving you the context, but just saying, I hate and despise your songs. Well, that's that settles it, right? Okay, when was that said? Why was that said? Who was that said? Or who said that? And who did they say it to? Those are the sort of questions you need to ask whenever, quote-unquote, doctrine is taken from a little snippet of a section of a verse. We see this in the book of Revelation, in New Testament prophecy. Now I guess we're seeing it with Old Testament prophets as well. Be very careful when people are forming these conclusions piecemeal rather than giving you the time and day, or rather the who, what, when, where, and why of those passages and saying, does this actually stack up? It's complete nonsense. Yeah. And we see in the Psalms, yeah. God is to be worshipped with stringed instruments, with timbrel, with song, right? Yeah. Uh, Psalm 150 says, praise him with the sound of the trumpet, praise him with the lute and the harp, praise him with the timbrel and the dance, praise him with stringed instruments and the flutes, praise him with loud cymbals, praise him with clashing cymbals, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Somebody said, well, that was the Old Testament. But they so were just using an Old Testament <laughs> reference. To but let's talk New Testament. Uh, some of the, well, we never see uh, musical instruments, or you know, it never says to play musical instruments in worship to the Lord. Well, I beg to differ. Uh, Revelation 14 and verse 2 says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and the voice of loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And loudly, too. Okay. Uh, and I saw something like a sea of glass, Revelation 15, 2, mingled with fire. And those who have victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, over the number of his name, standing on a sea of glass, having harps of God. So there you go. And by the way, harps are those bedeviled <clears throat> stringed instruments. Yeah. So, you know, again... You know, I, I think I, I understand. I've talked to some people who come out of, say, Church of Christ tradition where they think that all music should be a cappella, uh, you know, for their traditional reasons. Well, you know, again, it can be a Romans 14 thing. Uh, you know, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. But it also needs to be a Romans 14 thing because if I, because of something that isn't specifically spelled out in Scripture or is extremely doubtful, am condemning others as being minions of Satan because they don't follow my conviction to sing a cappella, then I've just out-bibled the Bible, mm. and we really don't want to do that. Yeah, and it was in Romans 14 that the weaker brother was the one that should not eat. Right, right. So, so yeah, it's interesting. But, you know, if musical instruments distract you in worship, then worship a cappella. You don't have to have stringed instruments or loud clashing cymbals. I think you're missing out on a lot, but... You don't have to, because it's the heart, as you mentioned, that matters. Hmm. Good good answer and good question. Thank you, Josh. I hope you were able to tune in today to catch that. <clears throat> uh, Shoe Speak wanted to ask about Luke 16, 8 through 9. And the question about that was, uh, what is it meant by being shrewd with finances? And is this a command to be like the character in the parable? No. no. Uh, that passage is, of course, a parable, as you stated, Adrian, and a parable is an illustrative story meant to drive home a familiar <coughs> and unknowable point. And, and parables can be parables of comparison and parables of contrast. 
And in this case, the contrast is pretty key. When we're talking about a shrewd businessman, we're using a term that's meaning dishonest, basically in summary, because it starts in verse 1 and it ends in verse 13. We won't take up too much time. But the point was a guy was dishonest with his master's finances, but only after he found out he was going to be fired. I wonder why. And when he was dishonest with them, he went to the people who owed his master something. You know, it's like... uh, throwing the subway sandwich at someone on your way out the door. Doesn't matter what I do at this point, I'm already canned. So, name that reference, by the way. But uh, when we're talking about the issue, uh, actually don't, but the uh, idea of the um, shrewd businessman, he says, oh, you owe my master this much? Well, I'll I'll pass it off in the books with half that. He's doing these people these favors and an investment for his future. Why? Because positive relationships, they'll take care of him when he's out on the street. So the idea then that Jesus drives it home towards is you try to make favors, and this is what it notes in verse 9, with unrighteous mammon, thinking, what, that you'll receive an everlasting home, but then he drives the point home and saying, he who is faithful in what is least is also faithful in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. And here's the kicker. Therefore, in light of this, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will you give to what is your own? Then here's the point. No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other. He'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You not, cannot serve God and mammon, a pagan god referencing riches or power. So the point of the parable, the punchline, isn't to say, be dishonest. Fulfill the stereotype. Go out of your way to cut deals so that you have something to be uh, advantaged by in the future. Now, Jesus is saying, look, if this guy was dishonest but smart in the fact he invested in his future relationships, knowing that this quote-unquote life would come to an end, how much more should you be investing in a positive sense? Why not shore up your relationship with God than thinking your business dealings make you any more right with him when you leave it all behind? And that's the point. So yeah. don't think that the Bible's teaching dishonesty any more than any of the parables. Well, it says in this parable right here, the parable of the lost coin, that she lost one and swept the house. So is this like an instruction that we should uh, regularly exercise spring cleaning? It's in the Bible. No, it was a series of parables that are driving home the point. God's seeking out those that are lost. <laughs> so follow the punchline, follow the crux of the argument, not get lost in the weeds of the illustration. Sure. Yeah, and, and uh, if the question also dovetails into what does it mean to be shrewd with your finances, um, I think there's a really great scripture to focus on. It's uh, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but the living God who gives richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. They may lay hold on eternal life. Some people say, well, I'm not rich. That doesn't apply to me. Well, mm-hmm. I saw a, a study that was done that says that the poorest person in American society today, as far as income goes, <clears throat> is in the top 3% as far as income in the entire world. Hmm. So we're really rich when you stop and think about it. Uh, God, in First Timothy chapter 6, uh, said, with food and clothes, with these we will be content. So if you've got more than food and clothes going for you, you're rich, you're blessed beyond what God said he would provide for you. The level of contentment is food and clothing. Most of us have food and clothing and, oh, I got a beater car. You're rich. You know, oh, I got food and clothing and, 
you know, the apartment I live in, it's not that great. You got a roof over your head, you're rich. So, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, I think the old saying is true, uh, that we don't fall into the trap of uh, loving things and using people. Mm-hmm. That's the way this world operates. We should love people and use things. And this passage says, if God's put you in a place where you're blessed, where you have more than enough, um, you know, let's face it, most of the, the books that are bestsellers are books about how to take off weight, mm-hmm. not how to, uh, you know, put on some weight in a famine situation. Uh, we're in a very advantageous situation in this country. So if we've got so much, we should look out for the needs of others. Uh, we should uh, realize that it all belongs to God mm-hmm. and that uh, he's going to hold us accountable for how we handle his stuff. So, so if you have things, use them too love people yeah <clears throat> she's big thanks for your other questions about the times times and half a times in daniel tribulation yeah we can book of revelation we have past episodes we dealt with that in depth i wanted to get to this other question that was uh sent to us today by caleb um what does it mean that jesus is bringing many sons to glory hebrews 2 10. let me turn there <laughs> the little time that we have yeah, okay here. Uh, <laughs> obviously just in hindsight and what i recall um it's followed up with a few references to the Old Testament. Let me read it. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed of calling them brethren, saying, and he quotes Psalm 22, I'll declare the name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And then in verse uh, 13, he quotes Second Samuel. I guess getting to the gist of it, uh, bringing many sons to glory is the picture of what Jesus came to do. The fact that we are all of one means that it was God's plan to send Jesus. It was God's plan to save us through Jesus. And so we have that unity together. Awesome. Well, thank you for your questions. And uh, if we didn't get your question today, please tune in tomorrow. We'll be here the same place, same time. God bless you. And thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.